Welcome, everyone. My name is Rick Bonkowski, and this is the Amped Up to 11 podcast. I'm very excited. We've got Jonty Warnikin here today. Jonty is a below-the-knee amputee. He is an ice swimmer. He's actually an ice miler. We're going to get into that a little bit later. He's a triathlete. He is an investment management consultant. If you could imagine that he does that as well on top of all these other things. Jonty is also a director of the International Ice Swimming Association. Jonty Warnikin, thanks for being here today. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Hope you can hear me. I know my Wi-Fi is not great. Well, I think we're going to try to muscle through here. We're going to hope for the best. Where in the world are you right now? That might explain our connection. So I live in the countryside in North Yorkshire in the north of England. So um, Wi-Fi isn't the strongest around here, put it that way. Certainly, I understand. And we are going to do our best to get through this and get as much of a benefit out of your story as possible. You know, John T., I, I've read up on you. I've done a, a deep dive on your history and what has brought you to some of these amazing things you're doing now and today. But I, I, I think where I want to start in talking to you today is to go through a little bit about what your youth was like in terms of how active of a man you were, how active of a young man you were. And from what I've read, you were involved heavily in rugby. Uh, you were in military prep as well as, weren't you a black belt as well at one point? Yeah, jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu, Wow. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? What 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 those years as a young man were like for you? Oh, I'm very lucky. So I was educated at what we would call private school, public school, which is private school. So my parents paid for me to to go away to school. Um, so from the age of ten, I boarded. I slept at school, and my parents moved to Papua New Guinea uh, for three years when I was ten. So I ha basically I had to board. And then I went to public school um, at the age of 13, uh, uh, a Jesuits college, one of the oldest Jesuit colleges in the in the world, actually, called Stonyhurst College. And I went there from age of 13 to 18, uh, which is traditional in the in the English uh, educational system. And I just love I love playing rugby. I've been playing rugby from the age of seven. All I ever wanted to do was play rugby for my country um, and be in the military. And so I that's what I did. I, I played rugby um, for what we call the county, which is a bit like the state in America. I played for the north of England, so it's like playing for the western states or the you know southeastern states. Um, I was in the Combined Cadet Corps, which at my school was just Army, so I was a junior under-officer in that. I uh, swam. I still swim, obviously. I did jiu-jitsu, got my black belt. Uh, at the age of 17, I got my pilot's license at 17, which is before I got my driving license. I, um, yeah, I just had a great, great education. And, and it was all about rugby and, and the military for me. And uh, 
with a good, you know, great set of mates who I, I still see very, very regularly. And then at age of 18, I went to university where I continued playing rugby, continued doing jiu-jitsu, continued flying a bit. Um, and I basically went to university to just get three years away from being in all-boys all education and before I joined up. Um, so I had an absolute ball. I didn't take my studies too seriously, put it that way. And then I went to the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst in September 93 to become an officer. So that's our equivalent of West Point. And I got medically discharged out of there in July, crashed my car in November, spent six months in hospital, and then elected to have my leg off in May at the age of 22. And so, so I'm, I'm going to step. Yeah, I'm going to stop you right there. Um, because I want to, I want to pause for a moment just to sort of reflect on everything you said up until your accident. What I'm hearing, which is pr pretty, pretty remarkable stuff, is that at your early twenties you were on top of the world. You were a young man, very active guy living out your dreams, doing many, many things that for myself at 53, I envy. And suddenly your life changes in a very, very dramatic way. You were 22, correct? When the accident occurred? Uh, yeah, 22. And can you, can you describe to me what that day was like when yeah, it was the you had the 29th of November '94, I was coming back from an interview in my 1963 MGB Roadster soft top, British Racing Green, chrome wire wheels, chrome bumpers, and I was near home. And I didn't have any seatbelts in the car. Uh, English law states you should wear a seatbelt, but if the car has never had them in, you don't actually legally have to put them in. So I never put them in. Uh, and I was going around this bend up a hill. And on the on the on my MG, it had a, an overdrive gearbox. I think you, you car guys will, will know what an overdrive gearbox is. And I dropped it down the overdrive to get around the corner up the hill. And as I did so, there was a load of mud on the road from the farm, and the back end came out. And I shot onto the onto the 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 verge, which had a hedge. And it's not uncommon in the UK that hedges got have have fences in them, and this had a fence in it. And I thought. Christ, if I barrel roll the car, I'm going to probably die. Um, so I pulled up, you know, this all in a split second. I pulled it off and I hit the one and only tree that is a big old oak tree at the side of the road at about 50 miles an hour. And, you know, my head went through the steering wheel, the seat shot forward. I smashed my legs to pieces and, and I nearly hit the local vicar, uh, the local padre. And, um, but I managed to sort of stay conscious. So my brother was home on leaves uh, from the Royal Navy where he was a, a nuclear submariner. And I spoke to the padre and I, and I asked him to ring my brother because I knew my parents would be out at work. And then they came down. They obviously rang for an ambulance, took him an hour to get me out of the car. And then, you know, that really was it. You know, I was pretty, pretty mangled um, from my, probably, probably from my thighs down. My head, I smashed my head to pieces as well, which they hadn't, we didn't realize for three days after the crash um i went off to hospital and you know it was pretty miserable and pretty painful <laughs> to say the least so 
Yeah, it's it's let's face it, it's truly a miracle that you survived the crash. Would you agree? Yeah, it was, you know, I, I yeah, someone smaller than me probably wouldn't have survived it because I I took the full impact of the, of the of the steering wheel on my chest. And I'm quite a big Ooh. sort of strong lad. I've, I've lifted weights since the age of 13, so I think that helped protect me being fit having just left the army helped me i suspect um, yeah certainly so, your yeah. physical condition played a role in you surviving such a such a massive impact do you recall waking up you know in the hospital what that mental process was like what did you know right away what were you soon to find out what did all of that feel like and and what so actually, what was happening? I didn't really pass out in the car. So I was having conversations. Some of them I remember, some of them I don't, and then got reminded by the fire brigade. Um, and so when I got to hospital, I remember you know I remember them getting me out of the car. I remember getting to the, into the ambulance. I remember them not locking in the uh, the, the, the trolley. For, went around the, the bend and the trolley swung in and back. And then I was chatting to the nurse, uh, the paramedics. Um. Uh, I'd already spoken to my brother a few times, you know, and I gave him my my expensive watch and my gold signet ring, so they didn't get lost in hospital. And I remember getting to hospital, going into the, into the A and E crash department, and and the rest of it. And after that, I remember everything but nothing because I was in so much pain. The, the pain in my legs mm. was just torturous, and they gave me morphine. And I've had morphine before because I've had a couple of operations on, you know cutting bits of bone off me and stuff like that. And it usually had an effect and and and, and it didn't. And it just didn't even touch the sides, as they say over here. Um and so at one point, I think if you'd if you'd given me the option to to shoot me, I, I might have accepted it. I was in that much pain. But basically my legs were smashed to pieces. So the the the, the muscles were just cramping because I had nothing to keep them extended. And I was just I was just in so much pain. My head that we then found out that I smashed my skull to bits and I had brain fluid coming down my nose. That that didn't even register. Neither did the cuts, and, and my, I took my knee down to the bone, um, or, or because I, there was a speaker in the footwell of the car, and my knee just just basically sliced the skin off my, the top of my knee, um, wow. caused a huge flap, and I didn't really feel that because the, the amount of pain in my uh, my tib and fib on my left leg and my right ankle, which I dislocated and smashed the talus, was just, um, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, that pain. It's the worst pain I've ever felt, I think. And I've had plenty of operations since and done some stupid things. But, yeah, that was awful. You know, I, I, I can't even imagine what that experience would have felt like, so much coming at you all at once. I've also read about you that the decision to amputate a portion of your left leg was, it seemed to me from what I've read, it seemed like it was a very, how would I describe, you knew it was the right thing to do almost almost right away. There wasn't what appeared to yeah. me a lot of soul searching. No, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, and I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I've got a brain in me. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not that stupid. And you get to a point where you realize things, you know, things aren't going your way in the recovery. My, we managed to heal my right ankle. You could see my ankle bone from, you know, you could just, it was just there. You could see it right down to the bone. You could see the pin. 
we managed to heal that up, grow the flesh. But my left leg just wasn't healing, and I, you know, I don't want to upset some of your listeners, but there's some of the stuff that happened and that we that we had to do, and it was just horrific. So you get an inkling that this isn't going, you know, that this isn't going the way that you you would hope. And sure. after five months in hospital, I, I moved hospital to 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 a more you know, much bigger hospital, and I had all the tests. They put, you know, they pumped the radio the radiation through me to check my. Uh, nervous system and they did that that was the electrics and they did the nervous system and and my all you know blood capillaries and all that and i was given an op you know an option by the surgeon who i think went on to be a professor at harvard actually and he basically said to me john so you've got a choice you've got five operations over three years we'll cut your leg at the top we'll take out all the dead bone we'll put an external fixator in we're swinging muscles you know the plastic guys and the nerves guys were swimming sw swinging muscles as he put it and, and nerves and vascular stuff um, and it'll take five operations, three years, and I'll give you a 30% chance of feeling your foot, or you can have it amputated. And I said, cut it off, because to me, it was just a very logical decision. You know, I don't, you know, decisions like that, if you make the decision from the heart, and I, and I sort of talk about this a bit when I do talks, you're never going to make that decision. You, you know, you, if you've got a bit of intelligence, you can, you, can, you can understand the odds, and you go, this isn't looking good. I really don't like the sound of five operations, three years, and just a 30% of just feeling my foot. Um, and so to me, it was, it was, it was so, you know, it literally, as quickly as I've said it, that's the decision made. And I went, I get that. And I, and I do make decisions quite fast. And I said, Craig, cut it off. And he gave me the great, you know, salesman alternative clothes, which was, do you want it done tomorrow or Monday? And I said, let's do it Monday. Give me some time to, to get used to this. And it was fine. Sure. You know, it was fine. It was the right decision. Um, and, and I can tell you why, because, and, and you might not believe this, but consultant orthopedic surgeons over here, and I've got some pals who are them, are, you know, they've got a sense of humor and they're a bit, you know, they're a bit sick as well. And they said, and he said to me, John, is there anything you want that I can do for you? And I said, yes. Can you save me two little bits of my toe bones? Because I want to make a pair of cufflinks, which he thought was quite a good idea. And I thought it was a genius idea. <laughs> But my leg was so rotten, he couldn't even do that. He said, your leg, you know, even if you wanted it rebuilt, I'd have cut it off. My leg had basically started dying the, the moment I crashed the car. So I was extremely lucky because I'd made the decision. I'd made, you know, I'd, I'd gone through that psychological process of, I get this. This is a logical decision. It's the right decision. I'd gone home. I think we discussed it on the Thursday. We had a wake for my leg on the on the Sunday before having it off on the Monday. So I was good to go. You know, sure. I'd made all those decisions. And then the worst no. thing would have been to say, well, let's go for a rebuild. I go down hoping for a rebuild and I wake up minus my leg because that's just, you know, that's just awful. I knew that when I went to sleep, that when I woke up, I would, my, 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 the start of my new life was starting. You know, I was, I was at the start, you know, at the start line rather than somewhere else. So, it, you know, it, it was good and I've never looked back. You know, I've, I've never had that what if. I never, I don't even say what if, but I've never had any of that. It just doesn't occur to me to, to, to think like that when you when you uh came out of surgery and began your rehabilitation what what was that process like for you and what i mean by that is what what was the duration of time that you would say coming back from such a a, a sort of a large-scale accident not just necessarily losing a portion of your your left leg but having some other issues with your your I believe your right ankle, you had some constructive surgery uh, also done. Um, was it on your nose? Correct. 
I had my head rebuilt. Uh, so going back, going back to the, how the, back to hospital like two days after the crash. So I, I wake up, and my legs are plastered from knee to to, to foot after they tried to rebuild my legs. And after about two days, yeah. after, you know, after that. I knew there was problems because I, I, I'm a rugby player and, and, and I I cut and I, I never healed particularly well. At, the, at university, some of my mates used to call me Uncle Fester because if I get a cut, it would always get infected. So I knew that my legs were becoming infected literally within 10 hours of waking up. And I called the nurse, my, who was the sister, and I said, look, we've got problems. You have to believe me. I know my body. We've got issues. This is infected. And it doesn't surprise me. Anyway, two days later, we went down, we cut the cast off, and they didn't want me to see because they didn't want me to see how bad, badly damaged my legs were. And my legs were utterly, you know, they had those two long cuts from ankle to, to pretty much to my knee on, on my left side. And my right ankle was just cut, and it was, it was just awful. And we got all that right. And then there'd been this fluid dribbling down my nose, and it took us three days to work out that it was brain fluid. And so... We then had to go through the process of what the hell's going on in your brain and, 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 and with your forehead and your nose. And it transpired that my head went through the steering wheel, which was luckily was a wooden steering wheel. And I, I pulled my head off the dashboard. That's how I sort of, the first thing I remember after the crash, and I only blanked out for literally a second. I pulled my head off the dashboard. I look in the mirror, there's blood everywhere coming out of my eye because the piece of wood had gone through, through the top of my, my, my um, eyebrow. Wow. And I think, mm, I've pretty much smashed myself up here. And... I, because I was lucid and conversational, you know, they, they didn't think there was that much damage to my head, but obviously there wasn't. And then we realized that my whole forehead was smashed to pieces. And I'd also pushed my nose, the top of most of my nose back into my, into my head. And so I severed my olfactory nerves pretty much. So I lost my sense of smell. Um, and so that we had to then start the process of, of that as well as what the hell's going on and trying to get my legs healed because my legs, the scars were just opening up and getting infected. And that's why you could see down to the bone in, in my ankle. And some of the stuff that was coming out of my left leg was just, you know, pretty horrendous, but we had to, you know, so, so there was sort of, let's get his legs, right. Let's get it. Then right. Let's do his head. So to rebuild my head, they cut me ear to ear and they pulled my face down and rebuilt with titanium plates, put a screw into my nose, pulled it out flicked it all back up and stapled again, which I believe is quite a popular way of doing facelifts now in, in, in LA. Um, but I had mine done at 22. And my wife says it's it's why I look young, because I had a facelift at 22. So that was the head <laughs> rebuild. And then a year that's later... A, that's a hard way to... That's a tough way to get a facelift, let me tell you. Yeah, it is. But it was free. It was on the National Health Service, so I didn't have to pay for it. So how about that? You know, there's always a plus. Um, when when you think about the the total rehabilitation, I mean, what what period of time are we talking about to where not only are you feeling some sense of normal again, and now you're getting ready to get into the world of prosthetics, walking with a prosthesis, functioning with a prosthesis. What what period of time did that take? Okay, for so you? I had. I think my leg, I had my leg off on, I think it was May the 16th, it was a Monday. And I was in the pub Friday night without a leg. <laughs> my dad, dad came and picked me up and we went to the local pub. Um, so that was the first sort of, excuse the pun, big step was Monday, Friday, I'm in the pub. And, and everyone said, talking about rehabilitation, I look so much better, literally, that 
Monday the leg was off, Tuesday I looked so much better and it was because there was so much bad stuff and rotten stuff in my leg that it was obviously it was polluting my bloodstream and everything, you know, all the lymph systems and whatever causes this. So I felt better. Um, and so we went to the pub, you know, came back to hospital that night. That was May the 16th, May the 20th, I think I went to the pub. I then I, the, the process of rehabilitation starts when you elect to have the leg off. So I think on, you know, I elected to have it off on the, on, on the Wednesday or the Tuesday is when the consultant discussion happened. They then, a physio from the prosthetics department came down before I had my leg off to show me what a prosthetic leg looked like. And, and you're all a bit of, okay, well, you know, is this actually happening? Had it off Monday, in the pub Friday, and then I can't... And, you you know, your leg is plaster-casted. I've, I've got a very short stump, so my leg was plaster-casted to keep, keep my um, ligaments straight so I didn't get a permanent curl, otherwise I'd have to have been an above knee. Um, and then maybe two weeks, two th once I think once the drains came out and that was pretty miserable. Once the scar, you know, the, the the stitch had healed, we then I went to the limb centre in Leeds, um, and started with a pamade, and walking on a pamade, and then once that got, we then made my first leg, and and I wanted I wanted to go to my friend's wedding with two legs and that and that was in I think that was in July I, I came out of hospital on my mother's 50th birthday which was June the 6th so leg was off May the 16th I was out of hospital June the 6th without a leg and then in July I had a leg that I could walk on albeit with with a stick or a pair of crutches so I could go two-legged to my friend's wedding and I actually managed a dance which is remarkable because I absolutely hate dancing um <laughs> that night so what's that six eight weeks and then that's remarkable. I was doing physio four days a week in hospital, basically getting used to wearing the leg. And my stump was shrinking, so they couldn't make legs quickly enough. And then I basically then went back to started work in December. I started weight training again in September. I went back to work. I got a job and went to work in the set in the December, and then just carried on from there, basically. So that that. To me, that that is uh, this the spirit of urgency, the spirit of I, I've got to get back to the things that I love doing, whether that's going to a wedding, whether that's getting back to work, Sorry, getting back in the gym. All of those things. It, it's it's extraordinary that you had that sense of urgency. Where where do you feel like that comes from in you? That that sort of. I, I've got to get back to normal life as quickly as possible. Um, I think it comes from a number of places. One, uh, I, I, I'm a Yorkshireman, and I, you know, and I, explaining Yorkshire to America, it's a bit like being a Texan, I suppose. We're very we're Yorkshiremen first, then we're English. It's that sort of thing, you know. Yorkshire is, and we're a tough old breed, and we, you know, we speak our minds and we just get on with stuff. Um, so there's that whole sort of getting on with it. It's like it is what it is. You're not going to change it. There's no point in harping about it and being miserable about it because it's not going to change anything. You just get on with it. So that's one thing. My mother, my upbringing, you know, is fairly tough. You know, my mum, you know, my mum, my mum went back to work um, after I crashed my car. So she came and saw me in A and E and said, "Well, there's nothing I can do." So she went back to work for two hours. Um, Dad stayed. I think my brother stayed. So th there's that sort of practic the practicality of life is I can't do anything. There's no point in moping around. You might as well just go and do something positive rather than just mope. 
So th there's that. Um, I've got a so I've got a really good family. I've got a really good, you know, upbringing. I've got a really good set of mates um, who, you know, from school and and from home who just looked after me and came and visited me every day and pretty much and and all of that. And they never treated me any differently. You know, they just mm. they just didn't. And I didn't want to be, and they knew what I was like. And so we've always done stupid things with my leg and, and got into some mischief and, and all of that. So, so there's all of that. And then there's myself and my own sort of pride and, and, and intelligence, which is there is literally, there is no point in, in moping about this because it's not going to change a thing. The only way to deal with this, in my opinion, is to look forward, be positive and, and try and make, make the best of the, the set of cards that have been presented to you. You know, life is a bit like a bit of poker. You know, you, you, you get dealt your cards, you can pick up a couple and throw a couple away. But at the end of the day, you've got to play the hand that's in front of you. And there's no point in looking over your shoulder at what you, you know, what your, your mate may have got to play with because they're his cards and not your cards. So just get on with it, you know, and make the best of the, of the situation you find yourself in. And that's, that's what I try and do. No, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying to hear those words is is very important for our audience. Very often, because I talk to so many different amputees, people will tend to get stuck. And when we can look towards someone like yourself, who has that attitude of get on with it, this is what you're faced with, receive it, and move forward. Very often, I think we tend to, in this particular community, to focus on the negative. And yeah. this is a difficult journey. I am not trying to discount that. I am not trying to make it seem like it's peaches and cream. It is not. It is, it is very hard. It is very different. It is very challenging. But we have people like yourself in our community that are high-functioning, active people, professional people, living their fullest life, and really setting the bar for all of us to say, hey, any, anything that I can do in a positive attitude or movement forward is a good thing. I'm going to have my bad days. However, I, 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 I need to bring my best self to this and move forward with it. On this edition of Amps You Should Know, I want to talk about Chase Zinn. I had the pleasure of meeting Chase just recently. We were talking about some prosthetics, a particular prosthetic company, and he had some questions. And we actually met online. Uh, Chase is 27. He's a right below the knee amputee. So he's an RBK, just like myself. He's been an amputee for four years. I think what I found really fascinating about Chase's story was how he became an amputee. Chase was in flying school. He was on a, a training flight and he experienced a plane crash. He was in midair, his, his engine stalled, and he basically fell out of the sky. And although he survived the crash, he was with a friend and that friend did not make it. So his story, although very tragic, 
I found to be quite uplifting as well. Chase is a, a young, bright, very, very uh, articulate, funny individual. I, I, I simply found the guy to be delightful. And I wanted to tell you about his story. His, his faith in God is obviously very deep. And he's one of those people that just inspires, just by knowing him, just by talking to him, his positivity and what he's come back from, a plane crash, losing a friend. Uh, Chase still is flying, believe it or not. He enjoys cars, motorcycles, boats. He's an active guy, obviously seeking his best life. And um, he's definitely an amputee that you should know. So we're back with John T. Warnikin. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about John T. Obviously had a very, very rapid recovery. Uh, his sense of urgency is is certainly inspiring, and really something that uh, we all need to tap into in the amputee community. John T., if you don't mind me asking, at what point in that particular process of rehabilitation? I know you went back to work. When did you feel comfortable putting yourself in a space of competing, uh, testing yourself more physically when you started doing, let's say, more higher level athletic things, not just necessarily going to the gym and doing your physical therapy. I'm talking about, hey, I want to get involved in these other events that are going to test me physically much more. When, when did that start to happen for you? Okay. Well, this is a, you know, this is another two hours. I can talk two hours on this. So try and try and put this in a, in a succinct way. I, it was all about rugby. I couldn't play rugby anymore. The, the rugby football union wouldn't allow me anyway. I wrote to them. It took me 10, 15 years to find something else. Um, I did go to the Paralympic squad, um, the British Paralympic squad, trained with them, ended up getting thrown out with a few of us, basically due to the cast of River Dance, but that's a whole separate great story. Um, <laughs> and my wife saw me getting heavier and heavier, aka fatter and fatter, and she said, look, you've got to find your mojo. And Because I never found anything that never found anything to replace rugby. And she said, well, let's go skiing. And I never went, had been skiing with two legs because I was always playing rugby. So we went. The British Disabled Ski Club did an event at one of the indoor things on a Sunday night, every Sunday night, last Sunday of the month. And we tried skiing. And I, within the first 10 feet of sliding with my skis tied together and all of that, I knew I'd found my own, my new sport, my new mojo, passion, whatever. So... To cut a long story short, for our honeymoon, we booked 18 days at the National Sports Centre for the Disabled at Winter Park, Colorado, the finest disabled ski school, I believe, in, in the world. Uh, and I learned to ski, and I accelerated through their process, uh, achieved far more in the first holiday than my wife ever envisaged, and I've just never stopped. In It, it, it gave me that mojo to lose all the weight that I put on, and I had helped to do that, and 
put it back on and I've lost it again through through an operation. That's another story. But it was that finding that one thing that was like replaced rugby and it was skiing. And that's really that's interesting. So skiing was the it was the bridge. Skiing was the the epiphany the moment catalyst. of Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. And 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 Winter Park, you know, I don't know if you've been up to Winter Park. We have a place there now. I would live there full time if 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 I could. Um, I absolutely love the place. I love the place. I love the people. I love the ski schools. Some of my instructors become one of my great friends. Um, I I just I, I just think it's a magical place. And you know, I always point to say, you know, if I meet disabled people about who want to try skiing, and you know, in the UK, I say, look, if you want to go somewhere really good. I think they teach sixteen to eighteen thousand lessons this season or, so, or a year or something. I said, get a, to the NSCD at Winter Park. Just go. Yeah, no, that's. I I think that so many high functioning amputees have that moment. At least the ones I've spoken to, where they get to sort of a a leveled off space, or or maybe feel that th- things have kind of stalled a bit. And then they're looking for that catalyst, that thing, like you're mentioning, that sort of opens the door and allows you to step through it and say, I'm going to transform myself. I'm going to do all these other things now because I have proven to myself and maybe the circle of people around me that I'm capable of it. And then going from skiing, what were the next steps for you? So skiing lose the weight help for heroes started so that's the equivalent of um in the uk of your uh, the charity that helps your your injured tr- uh, troops um, wounded warrior project wounded warrior so it's our equivalent so a pal of mine pinged this around because i got pals in the military and he pinged it around i said oh, i want to do the first bike ride and they were basically doing a five days of riding through northern france through the battlefields to raise money to provide a a swimming pool at the rehab center because members of the public were getting upset seeing injured you know boys and girls at the, the public pool and you know because people are weird so i said well i want to mm-hmm. do that so i went on that um and i went on with a group uh, through another long story short i was looked after by a group of raw marines and some I knew before, and others have become really, really good mates. And because this was at the start of the, you know, sort of the, the Afghan war and, and, and a lot of young amputees, and because I was sort of an old amputee by that stage, they started asking me, John, can you help us? Can you come and do this stuff? So I would, you know, I got rung up by a pal of mine, and he said, can you come and do an eight-mile speed march with some wounded commandos over? It's a classic commando speed march. It starts at a place called Speen Bridge, and it goes eight, eight miles over the, over the hills uh, to a place called Aknakari, which is where the commandos were first trained in the Second World War. And I said, sure. You know, I say yes a lot to things I probably shouldn't do, but I love saying yes. So I just go, yeah, sure. So I started doing that. So we, then we ended up doing three Help for Hero bike rides. Um, and then my brother got really bad depression, and he wanted to do this open water swim. And we've always swum outside, you know, as kids. And my wife said, you should do that with him. So we went and did a we were supposed to be doing the two mile swim up in a place called on Lake Windermere, but we decided in the pub to do a one mile warm up in London. And then we got even quite drunk and decided to swim a 10 K swim 
from a place called Totnes down to Dartmouth, which is where the Royal Naval College is, where he trained to be a naval officer. So we did all of that. And then I just basically carried on swimming and carried on swimming. And then when I moved back to Yorkshire from working in the city in London, the lakes didn't shut up here. And so I started swimming up here. And then my coach said, you need to, you know, you, you do need to get out of your wetsuit. And I think you could do this thing called the ice mile, which was just bubbling up in open water, uh, in the open water community about eight to 10 years ago. And then we realized no disabled person had done it. So I was like, right, well, I want to be the first world's first disabled ice miler. So of course you trained... do. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. You know, Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> of course you do. And so we trained for it and I did it. And I actually ended up doing what's known as an extreme ice mile because I did over two kilometers in sub five Celsius water. Um, and so I became the first disabled ice miler. And then I got uh, I, a thing came in, an opportunity to join the international board. So I now I sit on, as you say, I sit on the international board. Uh, where we're responsible for the, you know, for the whole sport, governing sport, setting, doing world championships with a view of trying to get it to the to the Winter Olympics. And, you know, that's, I do a lot of trying to get more swimmers into disabled swimmers and para swimmers into the into the ice or, or para swimming anyway, and then into the ice, because I think it's, it, you know, it's fab. There is no reason why, why they can't or why we can't. So, so I want to, I want to pause just for a second. I want to pause just for a second. I, I don't yeah, mean to break sure. your momentum. I, I want you to just explain to the audience what the ice mile is, what what that involves uh, in terms of, you know, obviously as an event, because I, I, I think this education is important, but also what's involved in, in, in training, prepping, competing, doing all of these things that to me, as someone who doesn't necessarily engage in these kinds of extreme sports. What is this all about? If, if you were to sit someone down and say, this is what this is all about in, in layman's terms, uh, present that to us a little bit. Okay, so ice swimming is, there's winter swimming and ice swimming. And winter swimming is a bit like... Uh, Polar bear swims is probably the shortest one that may be um, more familiar to, to you guys over in the States. And there is a the, the social swims and then there's the competitive side. Well, in ice swimming, we, we push the distance and we push temperature. So the ice mile is a it's the qualifying swim to be able to be a full member of the International Ice Swimming Association. We don't race it. It's it's a it's a individual, you know, uh, an event individual achievement that you just go and, and do and what it takes is what it is is a one mile swim water has to be below five degrees you can wear a standard swimming costume no wetsuit one cap pair of goggles earplugs and nose clip should you wish no grease nothing like that and you go and swim it and you can swim it any any stroke that you declare and you have to have medicals beforehand to make sure you're fit enough and your heart will, will take this so you have the standalone swim. Then we have the competitive side. So our maximum distance that we race in the ice at the moment is one kilometer. And, and we race, that's a race, you know, and you get in and you're off. And it's tough because there's no acclimatization, which is, is, is not great. And, and you're pushing it because you're racing. So you're pushing your bodies into, into, into stress levels that aren't, you know, aren't, aren't, sometimes aren't comfortable. Um, and so we race 
we race the the one k. We race five hundred meters. We do a four by two fifty relay, which is always mixed. That's the country relay, and then we'll do some of the shorter distances as well. And we play around with which ones we're going to swim depending on the length of time we've got to to hold the event. So if it's a three day event, we will have less than if it's a four day event. So what is what is the future and then, then sort of the adventure side? But the the training is is very much all the same. One, you have to have your medical twice a year to get signed off. And then you have to swim with experienced people who understand what it what it takes to recover someone from a body of water and, and, and keep you safe and alive. But they also need to understand you as an individual and how you swim so that they will push me. My coaches, who are my friends, will push me and go, stop it, just carry on, because they know, you know, I'm being a bit, I can't, I'm not very good at political, a bit of a wuss. And at other times they'll say, get out, because they can see what I can't see, which is I'm suffering. And so there's a huge amount yeah. of trust involved in ice swimming. And there are plenty, you know, there's a number of, of my, my, my GB team uh, and the, where I train. And I trust these people with my life because we are, we are, you know, you, you're pushing, you're pushing boundaries um, when you do some of this stuff. And the problem that we have in the UK is that our water doesn't necessarily get super, super cold. So we could be training in three degrees here, go over to, well, we, when we used to go to Russia, Russia or to Poland, and you can be racing in zero degree water or even sub zero degree. And, and that, you know, one degree matters, let alone three degrees. And, and you have to have great faith in your team and the, and the people around you that they will pull you out before you do yourself some permanent damage. Yeah, because really, in um, truth, what you're describing, you know, Jonti, is this sport, it's fair to, to say, is incredibly dangerous. Well, there's, you know, all, a lot of sports are dangerous. What we say about this, you know, the open water swimming is open water swimming, and this is just another level of it. But if you understand what you're doing and you do it with people who, who do, you know, who understand it and can recover you, then, you know, they will pull you out way before you, you go to, you know, you're going to get into any real sh problems, you know, proper problems, as we would say around here. Um, so, yes. On the surface, it looks like, you know, motor racing is dangerous, but plenty of people do it, not just, at right. the, you know, not just doing the Indy 500. They're racing every week. And it's, it's sort of that. You have to understand your body. You have to know what your body likes and what it doesn't like. I know what my body doesn't like. I've, I've eaten things or drunk things that I've got into the ice and, you know, water that's three degrees or whatever. I'm going, I'm getting out because I'm just not feeling it today. You know, there's, I've obviously eaten or I shouldn't have had that. And, and I've got out because I know it's not, you know, and, and you know, that that comes with time and, and experience and understanding your body, what it likes, what it doesn't like. So I know what I like, what I like to do before I get, get into the water. And it's pretty much what I do, you know, before I got in today. I mean, it was 12 degrees today. So, you know, I'm training for a, a North Channel uh, relay, first disabled relay team going across the north channel and you know it's 12 degrees which is you know deemed cold water i know what i do i know what i need and and my friends left me out there they're like oh god he's obviously feeling it today because i was out doing some distance whilst they got out but i was just feeling you know i was in a good groove today so there is that trust there's that knowledge there's that that thing and, and you just don't want to rush any of this you know we say it probably takes somebody new to ice swimming two to three seasons to to build up to do an ice mile because they've got to get that their body 
understanding what, what it feels like and how to operate in that. And they've got to learn that body. And then they've got to get a team around them or work with a, an experienced team who understand their body and, you know, where they can push it and where they can't. Um, but touch wood, we've never had any problems. And, you know, where I swim, we've done over 100 ice miles. With the, it's the world's most ice miles have been done uh, where I swim. And we've never had a, you know, a, a, I don't even think we've ever had an ambulance call. So, you know, you can, it, it may sound dangerous and crazy, but it, it, if you put the right people around you who know what they're doing, you, you know, and you listen and you, and you build up to it gently, you, you, you know, you're good. And you have your medicals to make sure your heart's fine. And all the rest of yeah, it. and I, I don't think I don't think crazy is a is a is a good word. I I do I do think that given all the nuance and the discipline that you put into it, and knowing your body, knowing your limitations, knowing your process, surrounding yourself with the right people, anything dangerous can be a very very calculated thing. I, I yeah. think the auto racing the auto racing analogy is is very good. You put someone on a track without any experience, you're probably going to put them in danger. However, someone that knows what they're doing, surrounded by people that are very skilled in that particular discipline, it becomes a very, very methodic thing. And I'm sure for yourself, knowing your body and knowing the process that you go through for these particular events, this is something that uh, is very very calculated. It's 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 like it's like being a surgeon. You're you're you know what you're doing. It's it's an event that is very well planned out, and although it is dangerous, um, that's when it is no longer crazy. Crazy is when someone does something that they've never done before, and Correct. they put themselves in harm's way. Uh, yeah. Now I know that you compete uh, and participate in some other uh, different sorts of events and things. Can you talk a little bit about that? You, you've done some triathlons as well, haven't you? Yeah, so one of the things that we have is a, we have a, a thing called the Iron Iceman and the Iron Icewoman, which is somebody who's done an ice mile and have also completed an Ironman. And so I wanted to be the first disabled person to do that. So I've been training for that. There's that, there, and... there's that first thing again, Jonty. You 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 yeah, tend no, to gravitate gets, towards it's, that. It's a killer. Once it's got you, it's like I want to do this. Uh, it's like, <laughs> like the first. We're going to be the first, hopefully, disabled team across the North Channel, which is swimming from Ireland to Scotland. Um, that's coming up in end of June, I think. Um, and so I, I started training for that, and then COVID sort of has uh, just shattered every everything that I you know all the timelines and all of that. So actually, yeah, all yeah. I know is I'm hopefully doing my Ironman in September in Italy. Um, and it's not, and, and that, you know, that's the last time I do any form of running because my ankle is killing me as it is. And it hurts like hell. And I'm, you know, my surgeon says, well, I can rebuild it. He's already been into my ankle two or three times already. We know it's utterly br knackered. There's no other word for it. it. It is, you know, it is properly bad, my ankle, and I shouldn't do anything, so, even walking. I probably shouldn't do, but I suffer. And going back to what we were talking about is I may make this sound light and, and easy and, and, it isn't. And if you want to do what I do, I always tell people, you just have to accept one thing, and that is you're going to suffer. I don't do any of this without pain, you know, but I accept that that's, that's part of the deal. So I know that when I do, when I swim, I'm fine. If I go and swim 5K in, in, a, in, a, in a lovely lake, you know, that's cool. 
But if I then want to get out and ride my bike, I know that my stump's going to get really sore and my ankle's going to hurt. And then I know that if I'm then going to go and do a 10K run after it like I did on the full triathlon in Leeds last year or try for an Ironman, then my ankle is probably going to shut down, my stump will shut down, and God knows how I'm going to get through it. But I've only got to do it once. So that's how I think. And then I end up trying to find stuff that I can do that doesn't basically ruin my right ankle and trash my stump. So I was in the Arctic hoping to do an ultra on skis um, in February, March. And I went out to, I had to do a four day survival course and I was doing it on skis, pulling a 50 pound pole and hoping to do this hundred mile ultra and ended up getting COVID. So they wouldn't let us, let those of us that got COVID race, which is a bit inconvenient, but I'm going to go to the Yukon and hopefully do it over there. So yeah, I think I recall seeing you mention that, uh, on social media. I just have a curiosity uh, for myself in terms of yeah. the triathlon piece. When you when you talk about, you know, parts of your body failing, it, because first of all, it sounds a little bit like, like your ankle, meaning your right ankle will tend to give you more trouble necessarily than your residual limb, which is obviously in a socket when you're, when you're biking and you are running. Am I correct on that? Yeah. And it's your my ankle that yeah. is the issue, a real issue. Yeah. And your prosthesis when you because I know you you swim with with no prosthesis, correct? Correct. Right. And then obviously you're you're getting on a bike, then you're going to a running position. Is there a switching yeah. of hardware there? Or are you in the same yeah, I tell people- are you in this yeah, I tell people I switch legs as people switch trainers, you know, or shoes. <laughs> okay, you know, it's just it's as simple as that. You know, I have a leg, my everyday leg that I actually use for cycling. I have a, a waterproof leg, which is just a basic leg to get in and out of legs, so I don't right. ruin my day leg. And then I have a carbon blade for for running, in inverted commas. I used to actually have a leg for skiing, but I didn't like it. It was it was one that clipped straight into the binding. But I found in high-speed edge turns, there was not enough weight over the center of the ski, and my ski used to vibrate, and I found it a little disconcerting. So I ditched that, and I just go back to a suction socket on my normal leg with a normal boot that clips into the ski, and I find that much, much more conducive to the way I like to ski. I think all of this information is really, really important because I think very often amputees that are looking into the future, looking into that space of, hey, I want to get more active. I want to, I want to bike. I want to hike. I want to ski. I want to do all these things. I think the lesson here is to adapt, to become capable of doing all these different disciplines. We also have to look at it, not just from a sheer will or guts or, you know, just pushing through it. What you know, what technologies am I employing to be able to reach those goals? Because as an amputee, you know, I, of course, I'm one myself, and I, uh, I'm i an avid cyclist, and uh, I'm a drummer, and there's mm-hmm. all these different, you know, pieces of hardware that are required for me to be able to do all the separate things that I want to do. So when I think of you in a triathlon, and you're you're you know cu- you know coming out of the water in a particular leg or getting on a bike switching to another leg you know getting on getting on pavement to run and th- and that's a whole other pro- you know prosthetic situation 
I, I think it's really important to understand that you know this this is a complex process. There isn't a one one size fits all, if you know what I mean. I think that's the nail on the head. You know, my buddy, uh, I've got a pal of mine. He lost lost his leg in Afghanistan, and he's a lower limb amputee. He's got a longer stump than me, um, and you know, short stumps you probably know are. They're a little bit more troublesome than having a, a, a decent yeah, residual stump. You're right. It's it's tricky. It gets tricky when it's, it's short. It's tricky. And he prefers completely different things that I do in legs. You know, I always ski in a, in a suction socket. My biggest problem, if I'm being honest with you, is that a lot of the stuff that I'm now doing, there's no one to ask because no one's done it. So I was on this survival course in Sweden and I asked the course instructor, I said, how many disabled people have you had on this course? And he goes, John, you're the first. I was like, okay. When I had a problem getting into sub three Celsius water with the metal in my head and my, my ankle, I messaged the chairman in South Africa, a guy called Ram Bakai. I messaged Ram and I said, how the hell do, you, do, do we do this? How does it do it? He says, I don't know. You're the only one that I know who does it. Work it out <laughs> and then tell us how we do it. And so, so... <laughs> you know, you, hey, you keep putting so, you keep putting yourself in this position, Jonty. You know, you just keep yeah, well, you keep <laughs> you keep finding yourself fun. in that circumstance. Yeah, I mean, my prosthetist was giggling once because I filled my foot shell um, with builder's wow. foam. You know that expanding foam that you get. In, you can put around pipe work to fill the cavity that you put the pipe in. Well, I, I kept complaining that when I was skiing that my carbon foot in the foot shell would, would, would rock. And so I would move my stump and the foot would rock. The foot, the carbon would rock, but the, the boot and therefore the ski wouldn't move. So I thought, well, this is just ridiculous. I need to, I need to have that touch that when I, it moves when, I, when I'm moving it. So I filled it with builder's foam. That works an absolute treat if you ever want to go skiing. No, it's funny you say that. I've, I've, no, it's funny you say that because I've I've burned through a few uh, foot shells myself, and uh, my my local I have a, a clinic I use in Oklahoma, but my local prosthetist said, you know, you're burning through these foot shells like crazy. I can I I can tell you're getting super active, but uh, I want to go through a couple of things that I wrote down that I, I guess we could call these quotes from you. And th these were things that, that definitely resonated with me. The, these were, were what I consider to be, for myself personally, and hopefully our audience, uh, very much forms of inspiration. Uh, the one thing that really resonated me with me is a very simple quote. It was that you feel it's important to complete, not compete to complete. Correct. That was something that really stopped me in my tracks because so often, you know, we're, we're high performers. We, we, we want to compete. That I think is such a great mantra for amputees. And, and can you expand on that for me? Yeah. So this is, this came from, I was complaining to my wife about, I can't keep up with some of my pals. And, she, and my wife said, Johns, they're special forces. I've got some pals in the equivalent of your SEAL Team 6. So they're fit guys. She said, they're special forces. They're younger than you. They've got two legs. What do you expect? And it was, it was like, you know, it was like, yes. I, yes. I'm never going to be able to win. If I go to 
if I go to a bike race or a triathlon, and I, I, I don't enter, I tend not to enter the power ones because I want to push the distance because I'm training for this Ironman. I'm never going to win. I'm just not. But I can tell you, I got so many plaudits and so many pats on the back, the bum, the shoulder, doing thing because I'm an amputee out there with a with a crowd who, let's face it, 99.99% of them aren't going to, to, to compete because they're not going to win. And what they recognise is a community that accepts that there's a guy or a girl, whoever, who's had some pretty, obviously, obviously some pretty shabby time but they're out here enjoying themselves as well. And and that's what it to me that's that's why my my mojo, my psychology is so probably so positive is because it's about the community. It's about being with people, enjoying yourself, doing stuff. And that's why I love about ice miles. You know, you can swim an ice mile. I think I did mine in 50 odd minutes. You can swim it in 21 minutes against the world and the world champs, but he knows and I know or she knows. And I swim with some of the world's best ice swimmers. That they know that I've done it, and I'm on a on a par. I've done my ice mile, and so if you just go and complete stuff, I promise you, as an amputee or a disabled, you know, individual, you will get as many plaudits and as many pats and that congratulations as the winner. I just guarantee it, because no, you turn up. There's that's... a thousand people there at a swim, and you're the only one with a duff leg or a duff arm or paralyzed no it's so true and i think it's something that we all have to remind ourselves that so often i will say things like so much of it is just showing up show up i mean that's such a big gesture of engagement i'm here i'm not trying to win i just want to be a part of this energy the other one i want to mention that really touched me and i want to make sure i get this right was Surround yourself with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yeah. Talk to me about that. So, so I was talking to a pal of mine who was, I was doing a podcast for him. Um, and if you go, and how do I explain this? The reason I ended up in the Arctic was because I came out of a lake and a friend of mine who is this extraordinary lady who's, I think she's, she's a grandma. She's definitely older than 60. She's, she, she, um, she's very religious. She's done Ironman. She's done, I think she's done Ice Mile. She, 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 she's always out in the Yukon or Lapland doing the hundred or the 350 mile, um, ultras. She's done ultramarathon. She's done everything. And she said to me, John, you could do this. You could come to the Arctic because she knows how much I love skiing. You can. I could introduce you to my friend Kate, who is. She's done ten ice miles. She's done the the ice seven. So that's seven ice miles in different continents, including a zero ice mile. So that's a mile where the water temperature has to be below one degree. She's done the English Channel. You talk to her. You talk to these other people. You talk to a friend of you know all of these people, and they go, "I'm nothing special. I'm nothing special. I just wanted to do this, or I can just do this, or I just enjoy doing this." And so most of the people that I have met who who do these really extraordinary things, and I don't really put myself in their category. I'm sort of humbled that they let me go and play with them in the ice and stuff. They're just ordinary people who do extraordinary things. And it's those people that will make you realise what you think is extraordinary at this stage of your life. To them is ordinary. You know, and, and, and it will always, they will just, 
help you bring keep lifting that bar so that you will then become one of those people who just does extraordinary things but when you look at yourself in the mirror having a shave or putting your makeup on that you go well i'm just an ordinary person i'm just an amputee who happens to do this and i surround myself with people who can do this and have done it and that's how it works so just surround yourself with extraordinary people who are ordinary talk to bit successful businessmen they'll tell you or business women they didn't say that i'm yeah i'm the big swinging whatever they'll go i'm just this this was just my idea and i managed to do this and then i failed at that but i got it back here and, and and they're usually very free at telling you what they do how they do it and their mindset and so just surround yourself with those those people you know you're so right i mean we are just ordinary people and so so often when i meet folks like yourself obviously i follow you i've i've read up on you i admire all the things that you're doing uh, not only for the amputee community, but also uh, for promoting the ice smile. You know, bringing that to the world stage is an is a, a unbelievable endeavor. So I thank you for that. But uh, this is words of wisdom, and I, I I hope that we've touched a few people with your story and what I see as a very no nonsense approach to being an amputee and living your best life. So um, that's going to be it for us today, Jonti. I want to thank you so much for, thank you for the, dealing with... Thank you for the Dealing with... Oh, no, my, my pleasure. Gosh, uh, and I... Stay in touch. I, I, I was going to say that. We've had some really nice exchanges through direct message and, and, and email, and I, I, I've, I have this fantasy of, like, sitting down with you for a few hours in a pub and sharing a pint together and I'm there. all the questions <laughs> that I have for you outside of this space, you know, just getting into all the little, uh, you know, uh, microscopic stuff of your amputee lifestyle. But again, thank you so much. Um, that's going to wrap it up for us. This is the Amped Up to 11 podcast. My name is Rick Bonkowski. Ha health and happiness to everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.